0: And gentlemen, welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a multimedia education project based on the popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from uh, critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between, in particular, the ongoing so called pandemonium. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Locals, Substack, Rumble et al., to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, writer slash editor, coming at you live from the very, very rainy Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada And I will be your host for today. And as always, there's a yin to the yang or the yang to the yin, so to say, please allow me to introduce the author of Running the Earth and my co-host for the podcast, Matthew Crawford. Good afternoon, Matthew. Hello. How are you? I'm I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I assume it's not storming quite as much in Texas as it is here. No, we have
1: like, it's a beautiful day in in the Dallas area. You, You guys are having a storm?
0: Yeah, I, well, I was this close to sending you a message saying that I was concerned my power was going to go out. I think oh, we'll no. survive, um, but it's a bit blustery. Um, but no bluster in our discussion today. Uh, no no bluster coming from our guest today. Look at that transition. Um, I'm really excited about the conversation today. You and I have been talking for a few weeks about uh, the, the prospect of doing a follow-up to a discussion we had. In fact, let me pull it up here. A discussion we had with our friend Gabriel uh, of Libre Solutions Network, uh, where we talked about uh, Web uh, Web 3.0 or the next generation of online services that can be used to decentralize uh, technology and combat the various issues we have with centralized big tech. Um, yeah, that was but really
1: cool. At the moment we had this conversation, people started to reach out to Gabe. Uh, I listened to at least one interview. Uh, radio interview that he gave afterward
0: well how about this let's bring our guests on one by one and we'll uh we'll we'll ask gabriel hello gabriel how are you great
2: how about you guys
0: doing very well now because matthew brought this up in fact i'm gonna bring on mark as well and we'll do a full round of introductions but i want to ask you about that interview ladies and gentlemen please welcome on mark kulag of housatonic live how are you sir
3: I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me on.
0: Thank you for joining us. So we're going to have you introduce yourself in a second, Mark. You've you've been on before, but not necessarily for a roundtable. But I want to focus just for a sec. Gabe, you had this fantastic interview. Do you want to tell us about that?
2: Yeah, Havore from uh, you might know him from geopolitics and Empire. He had me on TNT Radio, which I I had a lot of fun. It was uh, great to talk to him. Honestly, I'm a big fan of his work as well. So I, I was shocked when I got the email. It's like interview request. What well, I don't get those, but here I here I am.
1: Yeah, I hadn't heard him conduct an interview before. Um, that was my an introduction uh, uh, for me of him. Um, but he he sounds like a like a real smart guy. He ran a real good interview.
0: Well, well, we'll make sure to get a link for that, and I'll post it in the comments as we go. Um, now, in the meantime, more broadly, Gabriel, you are of Libre Solutions Network. Do you want to just really quickly introduce yourself in general and recap the work that you, the wonderful work that you do? Thank you. Yeah, I would
2: definitely summarize my work as I am basically trying to market online digital freedom. How can people think about ways they can liberate themselves from either dragnet surveillance, information control, and honestly, sometimes the tools themselves.
0: Fantastic. Um, And we'll have, in fact, the link to LibreSolutions.network as well as the next website I'm about to show are in the description of the video. Um, Now, Mark, welcome to the show. Do you want to just briefly introduce yourself to the guests who, if they for some reason have not yet become familiar with your work. Do you want to introduce yourself to them?
3: Uh, absolutely. Um, my name is Mark Kulak. I live just outside of Boston. And about four years or so ago, I started a little company called Houstonic Information Technology Services. And I have a program called Houstonic.live. is the name of a river in the state of Connecticut. For those outside of the region, may be unfamiliar with it. And my background is in the data storage industry, uh, electronic data storage industry as a software engineer, uh, as well as a product marketing director, competitive intelligence analyst. And several life circumstances, Lyme disease, drug addiction, etc., cetera, pulled me into the world of online research about six or seven years or so ago. And about four years ago, I decided to give it a, a full-time go. Uh, And the goal was to merge my own background with the needs of research and other people in the community. Uh, The program has been running for about uh, four years. Right now we have a little over a thousand episodes and I manage a very large uh, archive of information, all publicly sourced uh, uh, stuff or, you know, stuff that was acquired through paywalls at the very least.
0: And once again, uh, the link to your website uh, is available in the description, no matter where you watch in the video, uh, dear audience. And um, Mark's got a tremendous, uh, as he says, a a back catalog of research that is being updated daily, uh, as far as I can tell. And it is somewhere I go to reference uh, information all the time. And I just... Want to give a quick shout out as well to "Let's Talk America" episode one, mm. which just happened. I was privileged to watch the premiere of this live as it happened. Mark, do you want to just explain what this particular show is?
3: Oh, it's a new—it's a new show. It's actually uh, run by my friend Marie Clark, who lives not too far from me in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, she is a survivor of the Remdesivir protocol. And that experience led her to using her skills, uh, conversation, networking, professional networking, running interviews to now start a program uh, where she's interviewing other people who have been through that, either loss of a family member or survived it. This is her first episode. Uh, I'm merely providing some uh, technical uh, uh, expertise and hosting for it. And in here, she interviews a Lori Cedarstrom. Whose husband was a fairly well-known conservative talk show host in the Arizona area, who passed in, I think it was August of 2020, a brutal uh, almost 60 days in the hospital. Uh, much of it was effectively malpractice involving remdesivir, and she it took her a long time to finally step up and to uh, to have the ability to recover enough to start asking, has this happened to anyone else? And sadly, it has happened to a lot of other people. So. This, uh, I talk about some of my story a little bit here, but I, I think the most important focus with respect to uh, the theme of the program, uh, perhaps is going to be Lori Cedars from story. And I think you're going to see a lot of her going forward. She is a very smart, uh, very strong woman uh, who definitely wants to uh, get the word out and start networking. And congratulations to my friend Marie uh, for finally getting her own program started.
0: Yeah, uh, a huge congratulations to Marie and, and a, a big thanks to Lori for coming out um, and being so brave. And it was um, it was very difficult to listen to um, and simultaneously so tremendously well done when you have earnest people coming out and discussing uh, their real lived experiences, even in this tremendously painful uh, context. Um it, it, it was a very worthwhile listen, and I hope everybody uh, watching this right now goes and listens as well. And I'm going to put the link in the comments as well. Thank and you, I,
3: Liam, I, for mentioning that. I, I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: I, I'm a big believer that this is exactly what is changing the environment, um, not not um, alt media uh, turning into several large nodes um, that are, you know, uh, pushing out what what sometimes seems like templated information, but the, but the conversations with real people that everyone can scale. Um, my wife and I had a conversation with a, um, a, a boot seller in Fort Worth who told us about going to uh, a Baylor Scott hospital, or uh, I don't know if it's Baylor Scott White or something like that hospital, and, and uh, them trying to convince him for a week while he was there uh to take remdesivir and he he kept shutting them down but it was interesting you know he, he's probably in his 60s i'm guessing um and i and he you know it, it just sounded like he was he was being pressured and targeted but that he had just enough
0: information to dodge it thank goodness now um perhaps we can use this as our way to introduce the premise of today's show because um you know, uh, on your channel, Hussatonic, uh, Mark, you uh, have gone in depth on uh, the history of this drug now called remdesivir, also called Veclari, um, has had some other more coded type names as mm-hmm. early drugs tend to. Um, and interestingly, a lot of that information, um, perhaps uh, is so much as including its Wikipedia page, have been uh, wiped, memory hold, altered in some way. Um, And that's part one. Part two now is the uh, the concern that real stories like the one that Marie and Laurie and yourself have just shared that those themselves could be at risk of being wiped as well, as we've seen with, for example, Facebook groups uh, of 100000 plus people um, with injuries from various medical countermeasures um, being simply vanished from the Internet. Um, and that information being lost to those who may be looking for it. So this, to me, uh, spells out a huge need, not only to be able to openly share this on a variety of platforms, but to then be able to capture, archive, protect, distribute um, in a sort of more like a library sense, um, this sort of information. I'm wondering as someone from this field, um, someone whose expertise is in exactly this, uh, what, what would you, what would the first, uh, thing be that you would, you would, uh, start this conversation with what is data storage, uh, beyond what people think of as downloading a file to their computer? Like, what does it mean to have, uh, data integrity? How would you start this conversation?
3: Well, data integrity is ensuring that there is no loss of quality of a data set. Uh, there's no, uh, a frame within a video, uh, that, uh, that the, the bits flip, the values change, and maybe the colors change or the it's not visible anymore. Uh, that's the data integrity part. And there's a, a, a pretty high amount of quality on most data storage devices, even in your phone and so on. So that usually is not too much of a problem anymore, uh, but it's protecting against the risks, the risks of the environment, the physical environment, uh, as well as the, uh, the political environment, the human environment. And those risks include, well, first of all, user error, accidentally deleting something, maybe overriding a file, uh, you know, opening up a document and deleting a bunch of pages accidentally wanting the older version back. So there's the versioning and protecting yourself. There's making sure that you, your device could fall into the bathtub, uh, or get stolen or something of that nature and uh house fire make so that can you have a copy of your data can you restore it somehow i'll be a little bit inconveniently if one of those things happen and then of course there is the uh uh, the newer threat and this is something that wasn't spoken about too extensively when i worked at dell corporation and emc and netapp and that is well what if uh, what if the feds come in and say we we you know we're confiscating your data uh, and so in that case, how do you survive those challenges? Um, and uh, many people will say, well, I have, a, I have I'm using the cloud. Well, oh, that's great. You have an off-site copy that will protect you against your device being stolen, house fire, et cetera, will probably give you versioning so that you can access old versions of your files. However, um, uh, that can be confiscated as well. And I don't save anything illegal, I don't. don't, Matter of fact, if you listen to my program, I tend to be very skeptical of most whistleblower stories, even. Uh, And and as someone who had to reverse engineer multi-million dollar storage systems uh, like the uh, you know with EMC, uh, I had I developed the the craft of you know just taking you know conversations with people, white papers, old videos, and actually breaking it down to data storage diagrams. Um, it would take a while, but I could usually get pretty far with just public information. Uh, it, it was scary actually to some people. They were convinced I couldn't do it, but I could. And now I've sort of applied that to my own, my own work. Um, so there is those, uh, those, those threats. And, uh, this is being mapped of course, right now, uh, with the, uh, the tools that are currently available on the internet, the platforms, the Wikipedia is probably the, the one I talk about most, which sort of works on a, a singular truth model. Uh, there is only one truth, and because there's a belief that there's only one truth respect with respect to narratives, um, it can be it can be uh, tweaked a little bit. You know, little facts can be left off, narratives can be remolded, and based upon someone's seniority on a platform, they can have a lot of influence on the final story. Or right. uh, if I could
1: interject even beyond like, you know, seniority of editors or something like yeah. that, um the Ranking, yeah. rule got laid down like um like there's a standard for sourcing, right? Like, you know, and and maybe uh, certainly there there's gradations in quality, but but you make a bright line somewhere in the middle and then all of a sudden you are you're creating an inherent bias, but also if there are people who want to uh, futs with information, they now know exactly who to go after to futs with that information. And to the extent that anything is corrupted there, now we're entering an age in which we have these new AI tools like GPT. And those, mm-hmm. those can only be as good with their information uh, as the sources that they look to. So like there's so many downstream effects. That are exploding into society right now, so we we've got to you know we, we need to pay attention to the marks and Gaves of the world, uh, and and the solutions that they're looking for on the back end of all of that process.
3: It's a much bigger can of worms that I was jumping into, <laughs> um, so to say. Uh, what then? Then I then I thought uh, when I started, I, I knew that there were. Uh, you know, there were some challenges that our own family saw, things which weren't being uh, represented effectively or in a useful way for other people to take action um, or to avoid certain risks. And then that turned into, uh, you know, everything was on fire when Trump became president. And I was like, OK, what what's going on here? You know, because I, I mean, I always knew that there was bias in the world and media bias to some extent. But I, I just I, I didn't I was not yet ready to comprehend just how serious it was. Uh, so this has uh, this mission has sort of grown over time. It first it turned to new. Oh, if we could just get a little bit of background on Adam Schiff or something, just lame like that. In the grand scheme of things, it's like, wow, I actually thought that like that would be the pinnacle of revealing stuff. It's like, no, no, it's way deep deeper than that. And um, although I've sort of veered out of the the tech work that I've done, I, I do sense that ultimately I'm going to be going back in that direction. Uh, Again, no one could have uh, expected this pandemic, at least I didn't, uh, now. And not just inconveniencing us and maybe you know a few lives lost, but actually reorganizing our entire society. So it's a very pressing thing and it's, uh, it's made it challenging to say, okay, I've done enough research, right? Now I'm just gonna focus on maybe making some new platforms. Hence, I've been sort of stuck into the research work and the archival and not enough time doing the tech work that i that i used to do i'm starting to get a little rusty there sadly um i'm almost a little intimidated to be with gabe here uh to be honest with you um but it is an honor just the same but that's sort of like the, the the high level view hopefully to get things started that helps liam
0: yeah gabe what's what's your take how how uh how would you introduce the topic of uh data storage or information preservation how would you take the baton that mark just passed us
2: well, my focus recently has been ways that people who you know, aren't like Mike and I, who aren't very familiar with this stuff, how can we get people to a level where they can actually participate? Because one of the biggest problems is that when people want to participate, they just rush to whatever you know, Facebook group or new service that offers an opportunity. But the truth is, there are a lot of ways we can create our own opportunities. My most recent piece I wrote about like the best website for a single person, which I say static websites that you can generate without knowing web design, without knowing um, you know any of the the coding side of it. You just run this static site generator on your content, as long as it's formatted correctly, it will spit out an entire website that you can host inexpensively. But really like mark would probably point out this is only part of the picture not only do you have to have the ability to present something but you need something to present and i in addition to this you know static site generators are awesome but there's a technique i've noticed certain people using especially in the online privacy space where you pair it with a Git repository, and you don't need to know a whole lot of technical information to use Git-like tools. There are even user interfaces built on top of Git where people can collaborate at a really low technical level. Like, you don't need a whole lot of skill. It doesn't require a whole lot of different software. And I find the biggest advantage is that you can use your own stuff. So I'm planning on writing about this technique of using Git and static websites. And I want to call it Operation uh, Beehive because the honey is the information, you know? <laughs> what is, sorry, just point of clarification. What is Git? So Git is the – Mark mentioned earlier you want versioning. You want to be able to go back to a previous state. And Git is the software programmers use. To collaborate on code. But the nice thing is, is, code is just text, really any kind of text, whether it's latex, whether it's documents, whether it's even like large data sets. You can use Git for all those different types of workflows. And I consider that tool itself important enough to work into the workflow because then you get the versioning, but you also get the co- collaboration. And it's funny, a friend of mine pointed out to me that git has been used by you know the the older tech wizards who you can do Git over email you don't need you know a centralized service you can spit up your own email services like it is way more powerful a tool than people give it credit which is why a lot of my work has been going back to the foundations what are the really basic stuff people can use that doesn't have as much as a learning curve because they're ancient (laughs) Ancient Ancient's may be a harsh word but (laughs) do i recall correctly that microsoft bought github They did. But the nice thing is is you can run your own code forge. You can, like, there's Forjo, There's, what's the other ones? GitLab is the other one. You can self-host what most of GitHub does. Obviously, you won't get co-pilot. And I believe the page's functionality is different. But that's the thing. The tool that GitHub is built on top of is something anyone can use whether or not you touch GitHub.
3: Would you describe it like a WordPress where the product has sort of become a a, right? a language, a platform, in and of itself, yeah. But it, it, it does
1: slow down adoption, perhaps a little bit, when people have to think through. Like every time the, um, you know, prior tech interests come in and they see that somebody has has built, you know, a nice spaceship to, you know, that, that has launched with some True. new technology. Um, then there is sort of a, there's the secondary challenge of okay, now we need to make that technology easier to use within the larger ecosystem. And for more people to find it, like I, I wouldn't have known um, uh, the other platforms that you mentioned. And I was actually just trying to write them down and accidentally wrote GitHub down. What, what, what did you mention again, Sydney? Uh
2: There's code. There's, or there's Forgeo, which is what I run for myself. It's based off Git-T. How do you spell that? Forgeo? Forge-J-O. Okay. And then there's GitLab, which is the what was basically the big competitor for GitHub. And you can host that yourself as well.
0: Okay. Now, um, yes, so uh, got-
3: Gabriel oh. mentioned uh, a, a great point about, uh, uh, people hosting their own websites or using, um, using Wix or, uh, Google sites or whatever the ca- case is. How do you, how do you immortalize that information though? How do you ensure that it continues if someone misses a credit card payment or, you know, when they pass on, you know, how, or, or, or at the very least stop doing their work, right? How do you, how do you ensure it continues on who then takes ownership of that? Where does it go? Um, what is uh, conceptually nice about a collaborative platform like Wikipedia is multiple people can contribute to this shared body of knowledge. However, ultimately, then there' become gatekeepers who own it and massage it. And, you know, we'll erase a few facts here and a few facts over there. And suddenly the the what people understand to be the narrative changes just by masking facts. Okay. Um, so these are all, uh, you know, th- these are, I don't know what all the solutions are. I have some ideas that have been floating around uh, in my head, but, uh, the first part is to understanding the limitations of the, of the, of the platforms and the tools that we have. I have an
1: idea in my head of something like interplanetary file protocol where, um, you know, many people, <laughs> uh, somewhat, somewhat like, uh, 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 oh gosh, well, wherever, uh, Everybody's storing different things and, and, and getting the files downloaded from other people. What Torrenting. Torrenting. Thank you. Um, I, I, you know, I'm thinking like interplanetary file protocol uh, with, with torrenting where so long as um, storing something is either worth it to you or worth it to you plus the payments, you know, micropayments that come in from other people searching for it and downloading it from you or something like that so long as as that value exists then the information will exist and in a sense that that may be sort of like the correct economic pruning of all the information storage in the world so perhaps uh, we are beginning uh, a a true optimization process of uh, in an age where we probably have um, you know, gone so many directions with information that we haven't organized it well, and we haven't, you know, optimized the value of it well. So I, I bet that there will be a, a combination of the collaborative tools, but also like the individual file storage.
2: Well, to, uh, have different economic values. To build on this, actually, one of the things that the Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, has done that's somewhat controversial is if your website. Changes your robots.txt file, which is basically what it tells Google to index or not. A website can choose not to be archived by the Wayback Machine. Now, ostensibly, this is for privacy reasons. You know, if somebody has, you know, certain profiles, you want to be able to lock it off. But the thing is, is that means it itself is moderated by the websites themselves. Now, maybe I should be quiet about it so that people don't proactively do it. But that's the option that's out there.
0: Have you noticed many websites doing that? I, I I have identified a couple in my journeys who have gone that step and and actually made it so that they cannot be archived. You know this URL is excluded from viewing, I believe, is the message you get. But have you noticed that beyond just a couple examples?
2: I haven't noticed it come up in in my area because I am looking into specifically how to get things that are relatively uncontroversial done. Just I'm trying to package them in a way that's useful for, well, really anything. Yeah, I haven't
3: seen it, but I've I've seen URLs that I was at the very least surprised was not in the Wayback Machine. Hmm. That doesn't mean they were ever there. Uh, It's just surprising that some URLs are not there on cert- at certain times or that they didn't start until certain dates um,
0: well i M- yeah. mark i'm sure you've seen you i know you've been looking at uh, the world health organization website a fair amount and uh perhaps you've noticed they in uh maybe it was mid 2020 decided that they were going to do an entire website reshuffle where it's not that the stuff was deleted hmm. it's just you're going to find it at this new url now we've just moved where everything is stored
3: so I, I didn't know that. Um, you wonder why they did that, though. You wonder. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes engineers get in there and they just they are—they just—they—they they think they have a better way of doing things, and maybe yeah. it is better. But they—you th- know—change for the sake of change, and it just winds up being complicated. There may have been a nefarious reason behind it as well. But it's a good observation. Changing the URLs. Yep.
0: Or a reshifting of priorities of what the WHO would prefer the public focus on, perhaps. Mm. Uh, if they're you know engaging in messaging campaigns one way or the other, it could make sense. Now, I want to turn to uh, Vilma Betancourt in the chat who said, Mark has a structure for saving and backing up his data. Can he give us a peek into his system? Now, I'll qualify by saying... I don't expect you to reveal anything that would be proprietary or that would compromise the, you know, the the safety of your system. But that is sort of the premise of why I I figured you'd be an excellent guest on that specific topic, because you do appear to have a very good system. And you gave us just a bit of a sneak peek uh, just on this call here before we went live. So I'm wondering, uh, is that something you can introduce to the audience at a basic level?
3: Well, I would like to uh, be using a more sophisticated database than, uh, than online spreadsheets. But um, uh, I, I've made decisions to go simple um, and to focus on how to say the data management rules as opposed to uh, building up a system to do a lot of the automation. However, at some point, I do need more scripts to be able to validate that I have everything uh, uh, perfectly indexed. But what I have is I have my own proprietary uh, identification system for digital assets that I save. Um, I would encourage people, if they have found something of interest on the Internet, to save their own copy. Nice to have a link to something, but you need to save it. You need to print it out to a PDF file. If it's a video on YouTube, you can download the MP4. And make sure you note the date that you saved it uh, because these digital assets that what was at that particular web address can change at any time and one of the most important pieces uh of metadata of any digital asset i'm sure gabriel would agree is the date that you found it um that you know you say oh the wikipedia page for so and so says this i'm like well when did you look at um oh there are no new york times articles on this particular subject there I just uh, researched not to get into the weeds on something, but a company called Introgen, IntroGene, I-N-T-R-O-G-E-N-E. and I forget uh, you know something to do with uh, adenovirus vectored uh, uh, vaccines, and um, it was mentioned uh, in an interview of someone that I don't I don't want to talk too much about right now. Um, we wouldn't uh, want to divide, so, right? Exactly. So I went to the. Um, uh, newspapers.com. And I'm like, wow, there's not one mention of this company. How does it happen? How does that even happen? Uh, and then you can, one way you can verify that it should have been there is if you'll find 24 articles in the Wall Street Journal. So that doesn't mean that it's a race. At the very least, again, Gabe understands this stuff, it, it's unindexed, which is hilarious. I've had times where I've searched for something on ancestrynewspapers.com, can't find it and then i'll f- actually find up find articles about that same topic later on having searched having those articles found through other methods so they don't always delete things sometimes they just delete the, the metadata the indexing for it but on my end uh you need to have a, a unique id and i have a proprietary one uh you need to save your assets somehow um i have a unique name for every file i always save the date and uh in addition to a bunch of like topical pages that you've seen about have about a thousand or so of those uh i have about fifty thousand digital assets saved behind the scenes um uh, you know new york Times articles uh uh you know uh, uh i have the whole collection of sandia national laboratory uh P, uh newsletters uh that were bi-weekly from like 1951 to 1998 so you know that thing is just a freaking gold mine. For example, I've you know, I, I, yeah, all and kinds of assets probably, like that.
1: That's clearly a big deal. Um, I, you know, I, I'm sure you guys know of Johnny Vedmore. Uh, yes. And, and uh, his his the, the story that he told that that most um, stuck with me was how uh, he and and his roommates were growing weed inside their home. And the police come and knock on the door and come in. And and they didn't take the weed plants. They took his boxes of saved newspaper clippings.
0: Whoa. Right? (laughs) This is sort of what
1: shook him and turned him into a journalist. Um, The fact that that information control is that valuable, right? It's so valuable that um, police who don't even care sometimes to do what you would think their ordinary job would be. Um, you know, clearly we have, we, we have a lot of instances in which, uh, we, we know that police are just stopping controlling crime, you know, in the United uh, States at this point, but in many countries, right. Um, but they're interested in his, in his saved newspaper clipping. So and, and
3: go ahead. One more thing. i uh, just, for, I'm sorry to I- interrupt. Um, is, uh, and again, uh, it's, it's cool to have a, a fellow techie, uh, uh, on the line here is uh, it's I go out of my way to avoid vendor lock-in, to avoid platform lock-in. There are many individuals right now who are, are doing amazing research, and they will they will dump it all onto a particular proprietary website, web portal. Maybe Wix would be one of them, uh, or on Twitter even. And all of their data is on that one platform. The only way, they don't have really have a backup copy. I mean, they could request a copy of it, if their account is deleted it goes away uh and even if they do have a copy well how are you going to uh refactor that for another platform so while i use a very i actually mostly use google sites right now not because it's the best it just happens to be what i started with but i'm always thinking of if within the next hour if google says we've just shut off all your accounts your google drive is gone it's all gone goodbye can i recreate that and if even if it takes me a few weeks, that's okay. It's a pain, right? But I can do that. I'm not locked in. I don't use any formatting any of the way that I've uh, saved the data or named to organize it. That's specific to Google, uh, Google Drive, Google Sites or anything else. And that's an I would encourage people to think about that, run that mental exercise, whatever platform you use, if it goes away, what are you going to do? Do you at least have a copy? And if you do have a copy, how are you going to represent that somewhere else? Um, being able to do it is good. How much work will it be? Is it going to take you another year to rebuild it? So uh, you, know, somebody, you just ask the questions, and when people start thinking about it, they'll you know, they'll start uh, architecting their, uh, their layout better. So I'm, I focus on that more so at that level and uh, not so much on the uh, – I mean, I used to do all my websites in, in raw HTML. Uh, right now, I'm not doing that anymore, although I wish I could in a way because that would be portable, <laughs> more portable than going straight to uh, like, a, for example, a Wix uh, a Wix, uh, website.
1: Over seven years, how many times have you re-architected uh, your hierarchy of information? I, I ask because I've done it now. I, I think I'm in the middle of the fourth time in three years.
3: Well, the question seems to be how often, not how many times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, but not it many. May, it, it may I'm, I'm that, using uh, a model uh, Matt that I learned when I was an ad, I was the, the top uh, data storage division analyst at Dell. Uh, and I started learning this at NetApp. So I went through multiple permutations of this. I would have to save lots of documents, you know, user guides, uh, service guides, um, and so on. Um, i would say demos that people would post on youtube and i had to have a way to be able to organize all this stuff and to make sure that the, the, the legal department would be okay with it so i've sort of have a, i've been doing this for a while again. okay so you're back i was an engineer for about 12 years i did os's and drivers So i was always at you know very meticulous right on how i had to write code and and then i developed a model and i more or less have used that model which is uh it's not patented or anything uh, but you just have to list out the rules and be rigorous about following those rules. And there's a benefit to that. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll uh, uh, we'll, uh, pass the mic over to Liam here. The other benefit of that is, as a researcher, most of the most amazing things that I found as a researcher has come when I was not looking for it. It has come when I'm kicking back, enjoying a cream soda organizing my files for hours and hours and hours and hours and i'll just find like wow there's a crazy name that looks familiar you know because i'm trying to get everything to match my particular proprietary layout uh to to the rules that i've've i've had and i'm like holy crap i have that document saved somewhere else holy crap there's a suspicious uh uh, uh R guy in here interesting you know and then and then stuff just kind of falls out from there because we when we're looking for something, we only see what we want to find. Uh, and when you're more relaxed as an analyst, uh, and usually that happens when you're just in your data, but you're just organizing it, you're not looking for stuff. And now you're amazed models that you built instead of
1: search algorithms yeah. that you use. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, because um, you're you're subject to confirmation bias absolutely. just by default, right? Yep. But I've on the research side, I've experienced exactly what you're describing. Yeah. And um, I think I I watch people like you and some others who have identified this as a, you know, as a fact that that you yeah. can fall into kind of missing the picture if you're just looking for something. So I, I, I've come into it a little consciously. And so it's very relatable. You know, I'm working on um, a report right now, just a bit of a background on a couple of people for a letter that's going to be written. And there's a basic premise behind the question, you know you know, look for this kind of thing on this person. And almost inevitably, the story winds up being even more interesting, but not in the direction that people are looking. Bingo. You and, got it. And Mark, it makes it really hard to stick to deadlines.
3: Because, yes, it does.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you got to now. Yes. It, the question is, what's the goal here? Because if you're honest, then you're not going to want to, you know, settle for subpar data, especially if you're, you know, maybe accusing or suggesting somebody may have a conflict of interest, um, which is often the subject of my research. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I want to um, relate in that I, uh, so as a musician, so I went to recording school and at recording school, there was a very solid rule, uh, an unbreakable law, which is if it doesn't exist in three places, it doesn't exist at all. And the reason there is if you're a recording engineer or a producer and you're recording something and it's a great session, you've got a three gig, you know, uh, uh, session file and you've got it on your portable drive, but then you drop it down the toilet. Well, that entire project is gone. And oftentimes that's hundreds, thousands of dollars of work that's gone into that. And then what? You don't necessarily have insurance for that. Um, So you have two drives, you have cloud backups, um, and, and I've made this mistake. Luckily, in low-stakes scenarios, projects have been lost, and I learned. Um, so I want to tell you what I've done now based on what I believe your advice might be for people, and you you critique my system, okay? You ready? So when I find something online, the first thing I do, I'm going to share my screen here. Oops. I'm gonna share my screen. So let's say I'm looking for um just yeah, like just a, a page. So let's say it's on this Wikipedia page, just a random one. It has nothing to do with this. And the first thing I do when I get this almost by reflex is I I do two rounds of digital archiving using third-party services. The first is archive.today. Mm -hmm. I have a fun little button uh, loaded in as a uh, extension on my, uh, I use Opera browser, at least on this computer. And it automatically, when I hit the button, starts the archive. Great. I also do the same thing, but on the Wayback Machine, which is probably the one most people are familiar with. So simultaneously, you've got two digital copies that are not proprietary, or they're not behind anybody's paywall. They're just accessible to anybody else who may then come on those services later and may need to find a digital archive. Um, The next thing I do usually is I then put it into a format that is um, publicly accessible. So let's say I'm organizing it on our Campfire Wiki, which is essentially our version of what you've got with your Houstonic research Mm -hmm. uh, 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 site. Or it could be Wikipedia. Sometimes I myself will go in and at the same time, edit the Campfire Wiki, edit Wikipedia and now uh, edit wiki spooks because I'm an editor there as well, as some found out in a rather hilarious turn of events. Um, and so there now it's accessible to the public. And usually this is all very quick and easy to do. But what I've started to do, this is the part that you've introduced in, in my world is not just in the music context, but taking what's on here and capturing it. For example, opera has the ability to save the entire page as a PDF. hmm. With in the case of opera full functioning links and everything which I believe signifies that it's it's getting all of the metadata you'd need uh, in order to uh, uh, be somewhat forensically accurate um, that then gets downloaded onto a hard drive I've got I've called it campfire wiki drive a good really? now it's it's I and I want to talk about I want to I want to have you guys explain the difference between different kinds of hard drives in a minute but Um, it's a hard disk drive. I have two separate cloud services that I then back up to. One of them is just constantly backing up the entirety of all of my drives, just on an ongoing basis. And I have nothing sensitive being backed up. It's specifically Mm -hmm. targeted just to what I want to, you know, accidentally spill into the public sphere if that were to happen. And I have a separate file sharing system that links my computers and uh, in real time. And then I can send to a, It's called a vault, a more permanent cloud storage. So in summary, I have two hard drives. Oh, sorry, and then once a month, I back up this first hard drive, I clone it to a second hard drive. And that's my system.
3: And you keep it.
0: And you keep it, but uh, perhaps there's a step beyond that, that you you do that many others don't. Um, What are your thoughts on my system and what would you add on to it or take away or what would you change?
3: Would you like to go first, Gabe?
2: I'll let you go first because I have a question to follow up that could be suited to the broader, or you specifically.
3: Well, the good news is you will not lose your data to disaster at all. Um, The good news is um, if you have a a machine failure uh, or theft, you're not going to lose your data. The good news is you have lots of versions of your data. If you accidentally overwrite it or delete it, you're in good shape um, how that is indexed at the very least, depending upon the, when you're backing up your data, um, um, you may not have a, a central uh, index for it, for the different versions, but that's okay. Uh, at your scale and the, and my scale as well, you don't need that. Uh, the only potential risk or vulnerability is if there's a, a, a request to confiscate your digital assets, which will include, or could include, all cloud copies as well. Um, now, of course, the stuff that goes into the Internet Archive would uh, might be exempt from it. There's, there is a lot of really interesting discussion right now that's being had, and uh, 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 This Week in Tech is has some good people that have been covering it. Uh, I wish I, I had more time uh, for this particular topic, and that is the Internet Archive. What to do about uh, books that have been put on there and other copyrighted material? When can it be shared? When not to? Um, it's uh, it's it's a conversation that needs to be had. Uh, but so most of the stuff that you've been putting on there is stuff that was already in the Internet anyways, which is which is good. Um, but the, uh, each month I invest about $200 or so, uh, for another two to four terabyte SSD that I just, uh, send out to a different person. Uh, I have, have, uh, you know, dozens of volunteers right now who've taken drives, uh, should something happen? I mean, I own all the assets that are on these drives until such a time when I don't care. Right. Uh, but this is really my, 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 my protection. So these also give me an additional, how would you say, versioning, I, a, a, ver- a copy of everything that I had in my archive at the particular time that I make them. It also means that they're offline. It also means that they are no longer arguably uh, confiscatable. So if, uh, if someone needs to um, or is willing enough to be uh, my friend and, and make sure that the data lives on, uh, that's still the uh, that's still the case so it 's a little bit of an expensive uh venture and I know some people probably will not do anything with them It also means that I need to have things organized in a way that it's uh compact and efficient uh there's no reason to store you know every hD video i've downloaded in highest quality uh it's also important to have it uh, a a directory system a file folder system that you know i'm, I'm not putting my my iMovies in there not putting uh you know my personal photo album um my own resumes and all of this stuff it's really the uh the web pages that i have source documents um versioning of my like my wikipedia type file system uh my database files which are all versioned etc and i have a lot of copies of them uh all over the place so Uh, It's again, it's an extra couple hundred dollars a month, but it's it's that last little piece. And if you're a company, if you're let's say like you're a a law firm, you can't necessarily do something like that because you have laws on how uh, long you can retain data. Right. If you're a law firm, you need to hold on to things uh, for what name escapes me right now uh, for usually like seven years. And then after that. Uh, it becomes a liability after that, you need it destroyed uh, because now you could have data out there that could come back and haunt somebody in a case right um, I don't have that so i don't I don't have those uh, those types of uh, uh, it's, it's so embarrassing I can't think of the name right now uh policies that I need to uh, follow regarding uh, data destruction and I don't really have to deal with privacy too much either uh, for some for, big comp- for a, a company with a lot of uh, legal requirements, you need to have your offsite backups. And they also need to be sure that only certain people can see them, maybe even at certain times before they automatically get deleted. That gets really complicated. And that's why uh, uh, backup managers are, sometimes the, uh, the highest paid people in a company because they have to have networking experience, data security experience, as well as know how to use something like Commvault or NetBackup or uh, you know, Networker or whatever the, the, the tool is. It's incredibly, incredibly complicated stuff. For me, I just need to make sure that the data is invulnerable uh, and I have versions of it. Uh, so again, you have to talk to each person. What are your requirements? What are the legal risks that you need to, uh, to meet? And you need to have that discussion. And I think that most online researchers, archivists such as myself, have a very similar set of rules that we can adhere to. Um, um, and I think that's good. So um, uh, what, I, what I just said wouldn't necessarily speak well to uh, uh, you know, a, a bank or a law firm. They have different uh, requirements.
0: Okay. A lot we could dive off of from there. Gabe, you had a question.
2: Um, so I'll first uh, get into it by pointing out that there's a tool created, uh, it's called Wayback, and I'll, I meant to throw it, here it is. I put it in, I'll actually I should throw it in the chat. Uh, Liam, I put it in our chat. Um, it's called Wayback, and what it'll do is it'll upload something to the internet archive as well as keep your own copy and distribute it over you know Tor Hidden Services your own local, you know, web server. It, it has a lot of flexibility. I'd almost call it a Swiss Army net ne- uh, knife of archiving, and it's an excellent tool. And you know, when you really go into the weeds of what tools are available for this kind of activity, one of the things I'm curious about is how does AI change the game? And so, mm-hmm. OpenAI created this tool, Whisper, that is excellent at transcribing audio or video. If you turn it into audio um of at least a single speaker with multiple speakers you'd have to go through the effort of saying this person said that that person said that but at least for a single speaker you can get a transcription which means in some cases you may not need the recording you may not need the video and so my question is what do you guys think about compressing your archives, instead of having to lug around, you know, terabytes of video, if you're doing, you know, video for this kind of purpose, why not compress it down to a transcript and some screenshots? And that's way easier to store and manage and distribute in a lot of cases.
3: I, I agree, the, tra- the ability to transcribe is, uh, or a lot of it's done automatically right now for most YouTube videos. It's amazing, it, it's amazing uh, how much content we find. Uh, and um, a lot of Apple products right now are doing automatic optical character recognition as well. So many times I've saved, uh, you know, just raw images of, of articles and it's finding words on them. So, and I didn't even say, hey, you should run OCR on that. It used to be something I had to do manually. Uh, up to your point though, yes, there's no, there's generally no reason to save everything at the highest resolution. And in fact, Matt kind of alluded to that earlier. You know, I mean, we have security cameras in the house, you know, monitoring the doors. Do we need to save the 24 seven security fee? There's no value in that, it really isn't. However, sometimes there's videos where someone may, they may do a very telling eye roll at some time uh, during a a major presentation. Um, So, you know, but saving a video at compressed, you know 720p or 1080p oftentimes you can save you can reduce the the overall size of the video by about 90 percent sometimes more and also as someone who does content creation it's always really helpful if you can if you, if you realize there's an older video out there that has a lot of value to be able to show it if you still have it uh embed it into you know the a newer video production that that i'll make it can be really powerful to see someone that you've spoken about in the flesh, so to say, actually presenting a particular topic. Doesn't need to be at the highest resolution though. Uh, a little bit more than 240p, uh, but, but you're right. There are ways to reduce the amount of data storage dramatically uh, with, with some cleanup. It takes time. Uh, it does take time. It's not nothing, none of this is totally free, but thank goodness transcription has been a, 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 a blessing. One of the most powerful things I've seen um, out there. Almost embarrassing, though, as someone who makes videos because I my little dyslexia, you know, I get left and right and, you know, words mixed up sometimes. And I'm like, oh, did I really say that? (laughs) so But yeah, I I can sympathize.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Empathize. Um, We really weird thought. Um, You just made me think about the whole uh, Sinbad episode with the the genie movie uh, and the Mandela factor. Uh, Is everybody here familiar with
3: with that story?
0: Only from uh, your Substack article about it.
3: Can you spend Can you uh, spend a minute and just review it? Yeah, sorry, uh, and I think the name of the movie
1: was Shazam, and that's not to be confused with the recent Is it Marvel that that made a movie DC. called Shazam? Okay, uh, uh, the comic book movie. Um, so, and this was part of my childhood. I remember that this movie was made and that it was out there and that I watched, I don't know if I watched some of it or all that I, I didn't watch um, that sort of TV much, um, but I remembered it myself. And so when there was this controversy that came out online, maybe seven, eight years ago where some people remembered the movie and yet we were being told that the movie didn't exist. And Sinbad who was the genie in the movie said, no, you guys are, Confusing this with the Shaquille O'Neal movie where he played a genie. And so, you know, there's this very real discussion of, of what was going on where some people had this memory and it was being called a false memory. Well, finally, some it surfaced that there was, uh, so, you know, somebody had the actual old movie. And then even Sinbad did an interview where he came out and said, you know, okay, yeah, the movie was made and this is a government operation. Where people were sent to collect as many of the few copies out there as there were of the video and destroy them, uh, and in order to run some sort of an operation, he didn't explain what that operation was. And he said, "Look, there are only about three copies left in the world, and I'm sorry that I participated in this." You know, and that was what he said. So, like, you know, that, that's a very strange operation. This mass gaslighting. <laughs> of everybody in the world over whether or not this movie had ever been made. So here's a hypothesis. That's a test to see how well the world is
2: archiving information. I I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, to me, that's what I call the collapse of the intangible, where you have AI tools making it easy to, you know, distribute any kinds of events or, you know, evidence for one thing or another. And the challenge is is when you can do that, how do you validate things? I mean, I would argue we're still quite lucky that things like, you know, the Wayback Machine and Archive.is exist, because at least we have a relatively neutral tool that will say this website did look like this at this time, according to this server. But as time goes on, I think it will be very hard to prove authenticity. And I think, you know, Mark, you're really right. The versioning is probably one of the better ways we have to prove authenticity, because if you can at least show how something has changed over time, it's almost like a proof of work of, oh, here's my copy of events. It's something and it's more solid than somebody just saying, oh, I have a screenshot. That's for sure how it was.
1: And in a world in which, you know, we're being told by some people, uh, I, I've believed this myself for a pretty good while but I, uh, there are people like Whitney Webb who are saying look we're, we're really in an era of blackmail governance and, uh, and and I think that that there is an extent to which that's absolutely true. But you know what all this information is if we do this right, if everybody does this the way that that you two would teach it, then in a sense that distributed archived information with good, um you know source control um that is in a sense blackmail against the blackmailers or blackmail against the power levers who might themselves be leverageable by other blackmailers right like we the people you know we 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 then would be we the people again in a sense
2: and and i think that's really important because what we can all do you know i have a saying the only thing bigger than too big to fail is too small to shut down you don't want one person holding on to all the information you want them to create the capability to spread around the tools so that other people working actually independently there's no consensus building there's no just people looking around here's what i see here's my evidence and then other people bringing it together
1: i love this conversation okay uh now i'm going to make a proposal just and, and this is something that this is an idea, um, you know, it's worth beating on. Perfectly happy for, for everyone to beat on this idea. Um, what if What if we were, if uh, we, and, and when I say we, I'm going to use that very loosely. Maybe it's the four of us, maybe some other people, maybe, you know, mix match, pull people out, push people in where, where they need to. Um, what about running some sort of a uh, modern journalism class that involves all of this? All of this conversation, right here, here's the techie side of journalism. This is the techie side of journalism, and you know what? Aim it at a combination of parents and children. And the reason, mm-hmm. the reason to reach down to children with a class like this is because uh, when it comes to the the use of new distributed technology, it's always the twelve year olds who get this. Like, you know, they're the ones who who will spend six hours a day for the next seventeen days and just like instantly be you know, where their parents will be after four months, right? (laughs) Um, You know, but a class, you know, could we, could we leverage this scale this into a class that, uh, that, that people would come take and and be able to walk away with it, knowing how to do these things, maybe have a, you know, and even like, uh, Liam, when you said, you know, cloud services, you know, I don't know which cloud services you use, but, you know, I've been using various ones for, for 20 years now or so. And, And but but it may be that that we should go through a list of what does each one do and why do you use two different ones for what reasons. Right. Um, But, yeah, you know, teach a class in it. Thoughts.
2: I would definitely be able to contribute to something like that, and I'd be ecstatic too i'm speaking of, tribute <laughs> speaking of uh, cloud cloud services actually one of the, i i started out from a position of the cloud is evil we should all leave it you know to the maximum extent possible and for public information i am softening on that you know websites are public somebody can download it from your place putting it on the cloud does not put you at any additional risk of exposure and so one of the things i've explored recently is for anyone who uses online hosting and mark might know what I mean by this is object storage. It is very cheap hosting for static files. Some people even use this to host their static websites. And I think for even, you know, if you have backups of information that you just want to exist, you can throw it on an object storage bucket for cheaper than, you know, a lot of cloud Google storage plans anyways, simply because it's optimized for storing, you know, whether it's videos, audio clips, images, whatever, I think object storage now yes there's Amazon S3 but there's other different hosting providers have their versions of it and I think it's a very powerful tool to leverage for these kinds of situations
1: define object storage just so that I uh, do you mean that that external hard drive
2: no, um, it's, it's like I, I was discussing in the context of uh, cloud options, and object storage is something you'll buy from, say, your web hosting provider. And what makes object storage special is that it's easily automated by tools. So for instance, I run my own Fediverse server that sends all its attachments to, so when somebody makes a post, that attachment is actually on the object storage server. Why do I bother with this? So that the database for that exists on my machine, but the attachments will load faster from that object storage. So okay. people, if, if I could stop and get you to
1: rewind, I, I still don't know the definition of object storage. So it's, you're you're
2: you're, you're getting it's
1: far down my so it's sorry, a go ahead.
2: it's a cloud service that lets you or programs you run store files, and they can Would retrieve. You drive it as
3: content addressable storage
2: not really because it's still got like its own url um but Mm -hmm. it's it's how it is is basically they call it a bucket you have this bucket that through scripts or whatever your software is running it throws files on and what's nice is that 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 object storage has you know a ton it's way faster than my home connection as an example which is why i use it for attachments on my you know Fediverse server is that I don't if somebody loads, you know, my profile on it, my page will load at a normal pace because that my home internet can handle that. But then the attachments, say there's a video, I just uploaded a video of Denny Rancor docking recently, that will load from the bucket and that's in the cloud and that has way faster, you know, bandwidth than my own home connection. So,
3: so I, it's, I like it's to the talk. objects that people are referencing are stored in the cloud so it doesn't have to go through the smaller pipe right. to your house. And or and to- it's
2: I I think it's cheaper than Google Drive in a lot of ways. I get
1: 250
2: gigs for $5 a month. I don't know how competitive that is with cloud storage these days. I see.
1: Um, So then this is especially useful with videos in particular.
2: I I think you could build your own YouTube uh, on top of uh, object storage if that was your goal. But just for your own videos, not for, you know, if you want everybody to use it, then yeah, you'd pay out the wazoo. But just if you have a small amount yeah. of videos, create a static website, throw your videos on object storage, bada bing, bada boom, it won't cost you much.
3: I like it. Um, I, do like, I do like the idea, Matt. Um, uh, the only thing, and maybe this is a, a picnic, as you were saying earlier, is I've been uh, trying to get the definitions right. Uh, or the, the delineation between journalism and research. Mm. I do I, I do mostly research and, and made a data management and archival, and I would have nothing to work with if we didn't have people doing the journaling out there. You know, what did people say? Who you know? Uh, you know, what do I use from my sources? Right. And it's great to go out to events and to be part of that conversation and to provide a journal of stuff that other people can then use as a source many journalists do research many researchers do some journalism i tend to be more on the research side and i say that because uh um uh, i i've seen there are journalists who have really put themselves into serious harm and it's not appropriate for me to to say that the work that i do is, an, is that it should be on par with that it's a different skill set with different sets of risks um but there's, but I think we there's plenty of room at the table for both groups right here, and for people Absolutely. who do that crossover.
1: Yeah, that's a good distinction, and and uh, you're right. I shouldn't I shouldn't make it sound overly focused on journalism. Research is actually the uh, more um, specific basic skill, I guess, and then journalism includes you know uh, a different skill set um, that can involve it, but um, but involves a lot of different work but understood
3: well, this crossover and uh, most Perfect. people do a little bit of both and we need each other. Um, just sometimes it, I, I find it can be helpful uh, to know, you know, sort of uh, you know, like the different interfaces that are, that are out there. And when someone is, you know, doing a lot of journalism to you know, they uh, uh, sometimes they need support, you know, to do whatever travels, it's a different uh, type of uh, support structure.
1: Yeah, and this is a question. Uh, like even you know, before we were to build such a class, we would want to talk this through. Like what, like what you're doing is you're you're pointing to an architecture of knowledge, and you know to mm-hmm. to to walk through what that is. Somebody somebody may have like a good chart out there that already does this or something. Like this may be you know part of the education that that um, that we're sort of stumbling on as we as we imagine the need to distribute this outward, but, uh, or, or maybe we're, we're recognizing right now what that architecture is, but there, there are different forms of it, but that's good. Awesome.
0: Now I'm curious. It, it, so research and journalism, um, I think you're totally right crossover, but they're also distinct. And one thing that, um, so in my work, uh, I, I've worked with the Canadian COVID care Alliance on preparing, um, you know, research-based, um, You know, everything from uh, simple information gathering and and education uh, all the way to, you know, very well detailed position papers and letters to elected officials and such on on complex issues. The point is, with that as an example, there are times where the priority is making an effective argument. Mm -hmm. And then there are times where it's the opposite, where all you're trying to do. Is summarize the most complete version of the, the the data or the facts, the information, the resources um, that you can. But it seems oftentimes, in my experience at least, working on our Campfire Wiki, you find yourself doing a bit of both. And there's bias, just like with Wikipedia, there's bias, what's the scope of a project? Or and who are the people contributing to it? And what's what are, what is the self-stated mandate? What are people asking for? All of these things, I think, affect um, uh, affect how the same information can then be presented. Uh, so, I, I'm curious, in your work, well, broadly, what's your perspective on that? But, but in your work, what do you find is your priority between those two?
2: If I'll jump straight in, no, I would oh, say, please. I need- I would say there's three different disciplines. There is research, journalism, and the third one I would add is advocacy, which is what you brought up in the COVID Care Alliance. To be honest, while there is some research part of my, what I'm doing, I do consider the Liberal Solutions Network a advocacy project where I am trying to really emphasize why people would want to do various things as a means of undermining information control. And so to me, you know, there are aspects of it, but to me, journalism is basically saying, you know, what and then uh, research is trying to figure out how that works, and then journalism will really present that in a way and the arguments come out in the advocacy because that's where your values are are coming out in it there is some goal or some even you know worldview you're trying to just explain so that it can be applied to different parts of things and that's the direction I try to push in you know, I'm not trying to tell someone you need to do this and you're, you're a bad person if you're not doing this I am merely just trying to say that with these goals in mind I think this is a useful way of looking at it
3: that's an excellent breakdown. And uh, yes, that's exactly what uh, I, I was unable to put into words, the advocacy part. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to um, have some people who do um, a lot of research participate in my channels to be guests who are amazing advocates. And the one name that just comes to mind is my friend Paul G out in California, who just works with like the best people in the country regarding uh, wireless communication safety, he does wireamerica.org. Uh, he's not anti wireless. He's just, you know, you don't need six, you know, 4K video everywhere you go in the world. You know, <laughs> there's uh, and uh, there's, sa- there's there is such a thing as a little bit too much wire wireless at certain times. Uh, and, you know, what's safe levels for classrooms and stuff like that. He's an advocate. He's working with the state legislators. He's helping people in other states put together constructive uh, arguments. He's working with Scott McCullough. That's advocacy. And um, I'm, I deeply admire that. And I, I do some of that within the uh, uh, the, the drug addiction space and recovery. Uh, but it's actually turned out to be the one area I do the most advocacy in is just how to for, for people to protect their own data sets. Um, and I think that's where it will carry me more so than advocacy on vaccine safety. Uh, while I may dig up a lot of stuff there. Um, I don't foresee myself as being a leading voice uh, putting together those arguments, whatever safety is. And I know different people have different opinions on that Um, and I don't wanna get into that, but that's a great point. There is the advocacy part, but but again, the advocates needs intelligence. They need actionable information. They need to know how to have their arguments constructed in a way that they can deliver a three minute pitch on why certain things need to be done uh, and that hopefully is based off of good intelligence, good assessment and analysis, which in turn is based off sourcing. So there is a pipeline of information here. Um, Yeah, Uh, that was a great question, Liam.
0: Yeah, well, and now I wonder, so in the context of of what uh, you're covering on the public front, because. What You've got a two, uh, in, in fact, both of you, but Mark's site is a great example where you have a dual, um, like a dual module um, product or show or, or manifestation of your work as it stands currently, like what you're currently focusing on. You've got the presenting of the, the resource or the, the document, the item that you found. Collected into, in terms of how it's accessible, you've got it on, you know, profile pages of people, organizations, concepts. And as far as I can tell, there's no editorializing there beyond simply choosing what to include or not to include. Um, And then on your show, that's where you have a much more open, robust kind of discussion back and forth. Um, and, And importantly, the introduction of of often, you know, people with different perspectives uh, in your chats. I, I love your live streams and your community because of that. People aren't afraid to say they don't think you're right, or they Good. think someone else in the chat maybe has it wrong. Um, and oftentimes they're rather polite. Um, but do you, have you experienced what I've experienced, which is um, as you become known as someone who has access to, you know, a repository of information, you um, They start only wanting things that affirm an argument they're making, even if right beside it is information that sort of suggests at a minimum that the picture they're trying to advocate for isn't quite complete. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. We're all there. uh,
3: Nobody wants to be wrong. I don't like to be wrong. Well, that's human nature. Uh, at, at some point though I, I, I during my career and it was just a you know a, a blessed series of events um uh there's there's no college course on how to be an analyst there is none there's very few programs there is a school that does uh competitive intelligence um and uh they have a, a good linkedin group um but at some point you need to realize or not you i'm sorry that's the wrong way of saying it. at some point As someone who uh, uh, grows into becoming an analyst, you realize, am I capable of genuinely working really hard to prove myself wrong? It's really hard to do, but if I can prove myself wrong before anyone else does, well, I'm going to stay ahead of the pack. So you have to, you know, we have to constantly look at our own work and go, can I prove this wrong? Um. Uh, and if it is, well, how do we adjust it? How do we tweak it? Because uh, there's no prize for just being right. Yeah, um, you know, just look
1: to Cary Mullis, right? There are a handful of scientists who are really good to look for for various lessons. You know, there's a lot of fun in science. And, you know, there, there's the Feynmans who are good to look for, too, for certain types of fun. Cary Mullis is one of those guys who who's like, you know, science is this adventure of trying to falsify your views. And actually, this is actually the reason. Well Yeah, this is actually the reason why I was asking you about how many times you changed your architecture, because I think what has motivated me to change the architecture of my notes, and I'm on the fourth iteration. The third iteration was actually when I was trying to um, bring an operation uplift and turn it into a group exercise, and that sort of that I, I think ultimately for at least my use of my notes that turned into a failure. And so a lot of my notes sort of stayed at version two, but with some things already ported over to version three. And then and then as stories got more complex, I literally have 300 something partially written articles at any one point in time. And I didn't even realize I didn't have that Sinbad piece in an article yet. I have it like in in a half written article that's been sitting on on a tab uh, open on my computer for like a month now. Um, But I thought I had already put it in an article. Uh,
2: You have that was a big thing. Was that the one where we needed to say we knew somebody existed? <laughs> but, but it was the follow up explanation, right.
1: and then I had a follow up article to that, and I think ah. I had it written up like I, I don't think I've put the the video where where Sinbad talks about having participated in this operation, and I've got a whole bunch of information about uh, his his military service and connections to military intelligence. Understood. So yeah, like well, you know. It, you get to a point where um, where architecture of your own information becomes important, and and Mark, you're you're implying this in in several of your observations today, um, where that relates to how it is you can see the information together, and I think that that does constantly like good organization constantly pierces your knowledge frameworks. You know the things that might be your biases already so that when you aren't in your um more myopic mode of research you do make these grant these great observations all the time this happens to me i think it probably happens uh, to anybody who's put together enough information that they have to zoom in and zoom out and see it in different resolutions and see it um, Mm -hmm. in ways that they didn't intend to focus on it the first time around so i guess that that's part of the that, that's that's a lot of the reason I wanted to go down that road, and it's also part of the reason why I'd love to to have a class on it because I feel like I have skipped past failure modes, or, or mm-hmm. I, I've hit failure modes multiple times. Some of that you you probably just skipped from because you it was already part of your nature from your job.
3: Uh, yeah, well, uh, and there's different way. You know, there's some people need the mind maps, some people need the timeline. Uh, sometimes you just need the uh, the, the you know collections of raw data some there's all different ways to and even you know just even within the timeline tools do a search for all the different timeline platforms there's about 40 of them some of them do spans well some of them are single points some of them uh, are are more visually oriented Uh, some of them can uh, can do uh, they have different uh, limitations on different types of grouping there's all even just in timeline tools there are so many different uh, uh options and and ways to lay it out um and you know you have to use uh you know several different tools every time you use another platform another tool well guess what that's one more thing now that needs to be updated um so and uh and of course if you you, you would like to not you but we need to use things which can provide uh that provides some ability to both be backed up that uh, facilitate showing a concept demonstrating a concept to another person this is a platform that i uh, found tiki toki and uh it is a subscription based it's not free i chose this one because it's uh it's uh let's just say it's web-based right it's cloud accessible i don't need to host it locally um i like it because it has a basic 2d and a 3d it's it's uh basically you know it provides some level of visualization you could zoom in you can zoom out um but here there's uh again you can have different lanes uh you have to choose the granularity Do you want just single point and time events do you want to do spans um the way that these links look and are presented are different uh when you have a particular event do you want to say it's in this group or that group you know is it uh is it related to I don't know a pharma event. Is it related to uh, the life, uh, the, the birth or death of someone noteworthy? Um, there are so many different ways to to map and visualize this data, but it's important to uh, to at least try some of these things as a researcher, uh, because when you're just you're relaxed, you're you're spending hours on end populating the data in there. Eventually, something's going to happen. You're going to populate a data point and you're going to look at it and you go, I can't believe A happened the day before B. And like, how did I miss that? Right. How did right. I miss that? You know,
1: how? question: uh, if, yeah. if you populate this with all kinds of information, uh, do, you, do you put tags on them? So you can say, now I want to look at everything just associated with remdesivir. Now I want to look at everything just associated with, um, with the government. Now I want to look at does it have that hide and and just show
3: there is categories uh but the categories are they're binary so you so this uh you know these are concepts that gave are familiar in right is it uh is it a um a bit mask yeah can you choose multiple things uh you know event can be in multiple different categories at the same time or if it's just one well which one does it go into um, because if you only want to use some types of categories of information, you, you may actually miss something that's really important because of the way it's categorized. Um, this is a good, uh, yeah, this is probably one of their public ones, right?
0: No, I made this. Oh, this is you. No. <laughs> and uh, I'm and so Mark-
3: proud of you, Liam. I'm so proud of you. Tell, can you give us an introduction to this one?
0: Yeah, so this is this is just one iteration of something that Matthew has been pushing for for a while, which is the okay. the pandemonium timeline project. Okay? okay, and it's based on what you did with Remdesivir. Um, I'm just trying to get it so we can actually see everything. But um, it's it's uh, so so that so you introduced uh, everybody and and me in particular to this to this platform, which lets you go and as you say. So what what I've done just to explain is uh, I've tried to take events that largely may seem unrelated or uh, depending on who you're talking to. And that's mm-hmm. why I want to qualify. This is an in-progress you know, experiment of thoughts, more so than anything official. I want to mm-hmm. be really clear. But taking these, these sort of potentially unrelated events and putting them up alongside each other, as you've done in the Remdesivir timeline, and seeing what we get. You see um, various uh, organizations being formed, various... You know important cultural and uh, geopolitical events taking place and mm-hmm. then the ramifications of them um, you see various exercises uh that the, or or some rather strange supposedly fictional events mm-hmm. that then in very short order seem to happen in real life and no conclusion is required other than just look at the proximity of these events in time um you know start to analyze is there a cause and effect? Um, You know, well, this is a good example. Uh, the, it, for example, LifeLog, uh, the Department of Defense program uh, uh, tracking everybody's life, uh, everything they do forever, shutting down the exact day Facebook is officially founded. That's the kind of thing where, you know, I went into this knowing that was the case, but perhaps someone didn't know that. And now there you go, back to back. You see all of these, you know, in the context of COVID, you've got bioterrorism exercises going on. Um, You've got uh, various elected officials uh, who throughout their careers, even before, for example, taking the presidency, were involved in some very interesting nations and their bioweapons programs. It's
3: a great example of those events. They don't seem related to anything. But when you're like, wow, well, look at all these things going on in 2005 in Ukraine. And uh, and when you see it together on a timeline. Like wow okay why why did no one talk about this why did no one talk about the withdrawal of ukraine from iran uh with the an-225 the only plane plane in the world capable of carrying a mobile bio lab at the same time that the anthrax mobile labs disappeared from iraq it's like oh well, gee you know <laughs> i'm not brilliant i just happen to be the one of the first people that put those things on paper or electronically again so well, I, anyone can do this. So many people can find so many things that are there's just sitting there. There's so much gold that's just inches below the surface all over the place.
2: Yes. I would I would really bang the drum that the more people can do to independently create enough data to find these mm-hmm. patterns, that's probably what scares them more than people saying tweets they don't like on Twitter.
1: Yeah. And I, I just reached out... Um, you know, this is a a document that I have. It's it's 62 pages. Actually, uh, I I just put this up on my sub stack maybe four or five days ago. It was, it was uh, barely over half this size then. And, and just, you know, within a day, you know, 25 pages had been added and, and, you know, it's, it's fairly organized and dense and then Liam can take this and put it on the timeline the way that he is. Right. And, you know, what, what I have is, is, you know, sort of month by month, um, it's, it's, I mean, this is, I, I'm guessing this is 10% populated, if not 5% populated. So it's, you know, um, month by month, you can mention something that happened where you don't have just one date, but you have just generally this happened this month or something like that. But then you can also um, start, um, Hmm. you know, start adding day by day And, and we have it more populated once you get to 2020 and beyond, but even just like September, 2019, you know, you, You have all these events that occurred and every time I see more of these put next to each other, I'm just like, wow, you know, like there's too much going on in September of 2019 and October of 2019 not to view as suspicious at the very least, um, meaningful at the very least, right? And, And you see it better when it's all laid out, but, you know, all the way down to now, you know, all the way down to April. Um, so I guess Liam and I are building this as we go and we'll have better and better tools as we go. But, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks Mark.
0: <laughs> now
3: I love it. I love it.
0: Um, I just want to share cause Gabe, uh, Gabe is a very smart man and he sent something in the back that I'm just going to pull up here. Um, now this is something that I think it might have been Tonica in Operation Uplift originally sent me, um, but it, it went around in our, in our chat there. This is the COVID-19 slash biodefense mafia chart graph thing um, that's put together by the anonymous Spartacus. Um, I don't know very much about Spartacus, just disclaimer, uh, but um, I thought this as a tool was just fantastic um it's the tool itself is called graph commons and um you can uh do what spartacus did here well you could start by looking through spartacus's work here and seeing all of the connections of the individuals and organizations that in the perspective of spartacus are involved in uh the so-called Plandemonium, as we would like to call it and um it's just like Mm tiki-taki you can do a lot with images um, and almost uh, almost a mini wiki in itself. And you can begin to connect to other pieces of information and use these different tools to interlock and to almost look at the same set of information from entirely different perspectives, like in ways that you wouldn't be able to synthesize um, without looking at it uh, in, in a given way. And you see a reference here for DTRA.mil, but that I have used for example, as a a campfire wiki link. Um, Now I'm just gonna pull this off the screen just in case there's any private stuff, but I am gonna show one that I made. Um, So these are some tools. These are some tools that anybody can use. As Mark says, there there are paid things. You know, you can't always have free access to everything, hopefully because uh, not everything is collecting your data. You know, you wanna pay for something that uh, will be a good service and not have a trade-off like that. but yeah, I, I encourage other people to uh, to use these things as well. Yeah, um, and I know everybody out
1: there wants everything to be free. Um, I you know I think that that the time of people's labor, things like that, that has to be part of the consideration. Uh, there are more and more people moving toward things like software as a service as opposed to you know intellectual property, passive income, and it's it's I, I feel good about supporting those people when I see you know the work that they do to put this stuff together and these these types of graph software tools. When they first came out, they were um, in the hands of exactly the forms of centralized journalism that maybe, you know, um, have mm-hmm. pressure on them or connected to intelligence agencies themselves or connected to, at the very least, uh, powerful interests. And now they are available and teachable to, you know, everybody. And, you know, we can do this and it's it's part of the increasing level of pressure that we can put on um those uh, gated
2: systems well for those who would like everything to be free i would just point out that you would want to make sure your content is in a machine readable format whether it's json xml whatever and if it's machine readable then you could pay a competent programmer to build the same kind of accessible presentations on top of it the biggest challenge really is is that your data does need to be standardized and accessible because if you just, yeah, have a bunch of, you know, even, you know, spreadsheets actually do count as machine readable web pages, it depends. And th- there's a lot of flexibility if we standardize things is really the point I'm trying to hammer home here.
3: Yes, uh, that, uh, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, Wikipedia gives a little bit of standardization. You know, there'll be like a, like a biography of a person. There's basic fields the way that's presented uh someone is a professor you know where do they go to school who mentored them if they're a company number of employees revenue there's there's a little bit of that um uh but you know how do you index the world i mean how do you index everything <laughs> um it's I, I, I don't know but there t- t- to uh to make uh, th- some of these tools uh, the automation capable that work needs to be done and look uh, Much of these uh, searches, the ability to search across 50,000 files, these are very powerful or 100,000 or millions are only possible because of the indexing capabilities of computers. Nonetheless, um, it still comes down to just burning the midnight oil and a lot of hard work as as researchers, organizing, sorting, indexing and so on. So, uh, you know, the computers aren't going to take over anytime soon, maybe someday. uh, But it's going to be it's not anytime soon for sure. And I I think we're being hit with
1: um, with the psychological operation, which is uh, you must choose between being a Luddite and and accepting the uh, (laughs) the uh, brave new world. But no, I think that that it's just the opposite. I think that um, we all need to up our games a little better and that as we up our games, uh, you know, that's when we
3: take back the, the system. They're great tools. There's a lot of very powerful tools. Can we use them? respect them i i'm i'm optimistic about it um but you know the, the, there is a little bit of a it does feel as though uh that uh, like some of the chat gpt capabilities are being oversold they're taking some things that are simple and it's uh our our conception is like wow it it understands some basic sentences it must be you know <laughs> uh, a massive supercomputer that does that like well not really from Skynet. Yeah, Skynet. Kind of not, not not just yet. You know, uh, it wasn't supposed to rain today.
0: It rained. <laughs> large large language. So we, can't, we don't even have twelve
3: hour weather predictions down yet in New England. So you know, well maybe someday. Go- <laughs>
2: Yeah. I would go as far as to say a lot of the fear-mongering also about sentience is to confuse people about other topics mm-hmm. such as their own rights. Absolutely. Oh, this computer has you, – you know, well it's, it's a whole other complicated domain that may be outside of the scope. But I do think that there are multi-layers to that side of yeah. – Well, yeah.
0: Uh, unfortunately, we're coming up on – well, we're over an hour and a half now. This has been a tremendous and robust discussion exactly as I thought Beautiful. it would turn into. Um, and, uh, we've got plenty to come back to at a later date. I hope both of you will rejoin us. So. Um, in the meantime, let's, uh, let's speaking of using these tools for good, let's just one more time, go through how each of us is, is, uh, is fighting the good fight. So, uh, Mark, any final thoughts, anywhere you want to direct people, uh, anything specific you're working on that, uh, you think people would be, uh, most interested in or that you'd want them to find.
3: Uh, we're doing a lot of research right now on this uh, product of uh, remdesivir, how it was approved, and the uh, implications that it has in um, uh, un- understanding this, uh, this pandemic. There's different people who are doing research and evangelism here uh, uh, that are, uh, have different uh, goals. Uh, for example, uh, some people, the end goal is to just stop interventions which are doing bad things right now. We need to support those people. Uh, my goal is uh, really thinking about how do we uh, reduce the risk of something like this happening again uh, by having uh, archived the stuff before it goes away. And uh, I have a series of videos on this uh, on my channel, Uh Because of censorship, I can't leave stuff on YouTube, a lot of things up for that long. Although it's surprising, some things I can leave up a lot longer than I would have thought Possible. I don't even even myself. I don't have that algorithm down right away. Most things I'll put backup copies onto BitChute, Odyssey, Rumble, and uh, just continuing on day by day. My channel's not for everyone, for sure. But as you can see, uh, sometimes I'm as excited about the methods of doing the research and finding things and how to organize it and where do we go from a uh, you know uh, th- these new all the new potential uh, of the internet in the future as I am about the, the, the topics themselves. Um, and, uh, it was been, it's been really great. This was an unexpected introduction today, but I'm looking forward to another, uh, another episode with Gabe, uh, and you, uh, Liam and Matt.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, moving on to our, our, uh, very favorite Libre Solutions Network. Um, Gabriel, you have a website, you have a sub stack and a, Uh, for me, as of yet untapped goldmine of information that I'm trying to wrap my head around. Um, So (laughs) with that in mind, can you remind people, um, LibreSolutions.network is your website. What else are you working on that you want people to uh, go check out? What's something that is particularly exciting to you right now? What do you want to leave people with?
2: I mean, the biggest thing is that it really is a collection that I'm trying to grow, not only in amount, but also the types of content. You know, there are articles, some of them will include voiceovers, and then the videos themselves will go onto my PeerTube channel that is linked directly. The embeds will work, you'll be able to click onto it. And that's where I mirror either, you know, interviews like this or my own presentations on how to get certain things done. Um, one of my first demos was how tracking links work. If you mm-hmm. scroll down a little bit further, a lot of people aren't aware that in a lot of links you share, after the question mark, there's a whole lot of other stuff being shared in that information that you may yep. not want getting out there. You know, and that, the, to me, the scariest part about that is they can then map who's looking into this stuff. And to me, that is information
0: we shouldn't allow to get out. Hmm. You have changed how I approach copying and pasting links. I was not yes. aware of it until you uh, put that, it must have been about six months ago uh, in Mm -hmm. the Operation Uplift chat. Mm -hmm. And I have ever since then, I have cut out all of the tracking material every time I, uh, every time I remember to, which is almost every time. Mm -hmm. So thank you. for
1: This has been going on for years and years. I think I I first noticed this like 15 or (laughs) so years ago, um, but I didn't even make it a good enough habit until uh, more recently because I, I guess I, I was not deep diving is awesome <laughs> um so yeah it does need to be a habit yeah cut off everything about after that question mark um i just want to mention this um uh gabe is also helping um uh i'm kind of rebooting the education network that i was building that was my my primary focus at the beginning of the pandemic before i dropped it to to do all this grounding the earth and everything else but um uh, he's helping rebuild a website and i just decided recently uh, which apparently Gabe Gabe uh, enthusiastically approves of. Um, we're we're going to open source all of our educational material. So I have thousands and thousands of pages of mm. math curriculum. I'm just going to put it out there. You know, I'm not going to bother to like bind it into book. I mean, maybe we'll we'll put it into books later if you if you prefer binding. Maybe you can buy it. That's fine. But uh, we're we're mostly focused uh, focused instead on building a community. And, uh, and the community is at at locals. Um, we've just kind of started to like you know, try to gather people. So there's like 100 people here or like 99 as at this moment. Um, but that that's where I was thinking, you know, if we start hosting classes, I'm going to do like an adult math club, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, let people uh, get a better sense of statistics, for instance, by reminding them of the foundation, maybe helping them see it better than they had the first time around when they were in school. And maybe then they will be less likely to be fooled by statistics or more likely to put together their own spreadsheets to follow data along. Um, we could do something like, you know, it, it really anything that is valuable, hopefully, like I, I want this to become a community that can just sort of begin to run its own classes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, the business side of it would just be, you know, uh, uh, a few memberships to a locals community. But I, I think that that will actually work in terms of, um, you know, uh, uh, being able to have enough revenue for, for interesting projects, right? Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, the website, uh, well, but we're still trying to, to, to rebrand all of the curriculum, pull off, you know, branding labels of my past schools and, and you know, just put something, uh, put a new face on it, but it will be up for, especially in this age, millions of new homeschoolers. That's a lot of people who will find at least some of that subset valuable and hopefully other people are going to provide it too so that that's uh that's one of the
3: projects that i've been working on lately that i think fits fits in with all this that's a booming market matt that's a that's a big market that's growing really fast for you to access that's very smart
0: speaking of locals We've been having a robust discussion over at roundingtheearth.locals.com. It is the best place where you can subscribe to the show. Uh, If you want to become a free member, it's the best way to keep up to date with uh, what the community is talking about. It's where we post all of our information. Uh, We host our live streams there as well. And indeed in the chat, we've been having questions. We've been having community members discussing amongst themselves, engaging with us as well. So, um, And of course, if you do want to support the show financially, which is very helpful. Um, you can do so for as little as five bucks a month and you get exclusive access to supporters only weekly live streams where we mm. gossip. I'm just kidding, but they are very interesting, very fun. We had a music listening session a couple weeks back. Um, great community of people, real friendships being made. So roundingtheearth.locals.com. And I will put one more plug right at the end, which is the still growing, still probably underused, but still awesome campfire wiki it's where we're trying to uh we're in a lot of ways we're following mark's lead we're uh we're trying to do uh what we think is is um an effective uh effort of gathering and arranging and presenting information as we find it in a way that isn't simply speculative uh, it's it's open-minded discussion research um it, but in the end we're just trying to make sure things don't get memory hold so campfire.wiki um, and, uh, yeah, uh, join us over there. Um, gentlemen, any final thoughts before I kick us all out and shut down the stream? It's been great. No. <laughs> I had a great time. Thank this you. This has been great.
3: Yes. Lots of fun.
0: Okay. Thank you guys so much. Um, and thank you to everybody who has been watching on, uh, on Rumble, Locals, Rockfin, Odyssey, CloudHub and facebook and also twitch now quick heads up on twitch i don't know what happened i can't get back into our twitch account uh i i don't i don't think anything nefarious happened it's just uh, giving me some trouble yet i have been streaming live to locals or sorry to twitch uh on all of our recent streams so if you are watching there hello thank you so much and um we will be back tomorrow for our weekly local supporters exclusive live stream And um, I hope you all learned something today. There's lots of questions we didn't even get to because this is how broad and robust a topic uh, and and really whole area of societal change uh, that we're undergoing. Um, But don't hesitate to continue the discussion um, in the uh, locals community or wherever else you may be hanging out with us. I've been Liam Sturgis. We will see you on the flippity flop.